If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 2. I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Get comfortable in Matthew, because we're going to be here until like July. You know, we're going to be camping out in, in the book of Matthew. Have you ever just had your expectations dashed? One of those things that you walked into something, you thought it was going to be this way, anticipation swells, I can't wait to go to this place, watch this movie, whatever, and then you go experience it, and it's just nothing like you thought it was going to be. I think it's like one of the worst feelings. Like it's a horrible, horrible feeling. Growing up in Tennessee, uh, one of the things that we have plenty of in Tennessee is uh, corn. And so that makes it to where corn mazes are like an every other filled thing in Tennessee. Like you can find a corn maze anywhere you want. And like in Tennessee, it's not just like people build mazes. Corn mazes are like a form of artwork. Have you guys ever seen these types of corn mazes? I don't have any pictures. You can Google them though. And it's like, you know, they'll put a drone above it and take a picture. And like in Tennessee, it'll be like, this is a picture of Dolly Parton made into a corn maze. And it's like the most incredible thing you've ever seen. Like that's... That was all over the place. So growing up in Tennessee, when I was in high school, we would go with my youth group. And in college, we would go with my college buddies. And when I got out here, I realized that corn mazes are just a lot far and further in between in the state of New Mexico. Turns out growing corn in a, de in a desert is not all that easy to do. Now, there are some around here, right? We have one in Clovis, and that's pretty nice. But even those ones, they're not like the beautiful artwork corn mazes. They're just corn mazes, and that's nice. So when Haley and I first got married, we were living in Albuquerque. I was preaching down in Socorro, and on the drive from Albuquerque to Socorro, we would pass this corn maze in Las Lunas. And I was like, Haley, we have to go to that corn maze. Like, I love corn mazes. Uh, we did them all the time in Tennessee. We have to go. And not only was this like a corn maze, it was advertised like the biggest corn maze in a 200-mile radius, which that sounds impressive, until you realize New Mexico has like 700, 200-mile radiuses, and that doesn't mean much. So you can already tell where this is going. But they also like had advertised like a petting zoo and a pumpkin patch, and they had like a, a hay ground, which is like a play on the word playground, and it was like where you would have slides and stuff. And I said, we got to go to that. So I convinced her one evening and her little sister, we were going to get together, go to, this, uh, go to this corn maze. And so we take off, we get there, nobody in the parking lot. It's like a Thursday night, two weeks out of Halloween no one's there, which should be clue number one. But, you know, the hopeless optimist that I am is like, no, it's going to be great. It's not even crowded. It's going to be so fun. Let's go. So we go to the ticket booth, and you have like a lady smoking a cigarette, looking at her phone, not interested in anything. And she's like, it's $20 a person. Oh, we got we, we to do this corn maze. So we pay the money, and we head in, and they have all these signs like, hay ground, play area, and all this stuff. So we pass by the hay ground, which is literally like three hay bales stacked up about this high, and then a drainage pipe that you would like bury under an overpass. That's a slide. That's it. That's the hay ground. Well, I wasn't going to play on that anyway, so that's okay. So we head over to the petting zoo. And I'm not joking you. The petting zoo is two goats and a donkey with mange. <laughs> like, donkey has flies all over him. His hair's falling out. It was like 50 cents to even buy like the feed to feed them. And they looked emaciated. And it's like, someone needs to feed these animals something here. Well, the petting zoo is not going to cut it, so we'll go to the pumpkin patch. And the pumpkin patch was like two vines with pumpkins growing on them, and they were, you know, this big. Let's just go to the corn maze. We'll just go to the corn maze, and you walk up. And I don't mean to be mean to this state. I love New Mexico, and it has lots of great things about it. But corn mazes are not one of those things sometimes, because the corn's like four feet tall. You can see over the corn. And so 
you know, you just walk into the corn maze. And I don't know what it was, but we walked out there, and I looked down, and there were like 15 mosquitoes just all over me, like on my legs, on my arms, like hummingbird-sized mosquitoes. And we got about 100 yards in, and Haley looks at me and says, can we please not do this? I was like, yeah, we cannot do this. And just expectations dashed. We returned to the car. Um, The passive person that I am didn't go seek a refund because I was like, they probably need the money. Like, they need to feed those animals. So let's just let them keep the 60 bucks, and we'll never go back. And to this day, when we pass by that, we're like, that's where that horrible corn maze is. Uh, but it's not a corn maze anymore. Facebook bought them out and built like a Facebook data center there. So you don't have to worry about the loss. Have you ever had those experiences where you just high expectations? I can't wait to go and do this, see this movie, go to this theme park, watch this concert. And you show up and it's horrible. It's just nothing like you expected. It's one of the most disheartening feelings I think anyone could ever experience. But it gets even worse because what happens when it's not just a one-time event? One of the things I've learned about life is there are plenty of things that are far, far bigger than the disappointment of a corn maze that sets in on us. There's thinking you were going to get that job and you don't. Thinking you were going to have that family and it doesn't come the way you thought it would. Thinking that you were going to become big and famous, that you were finally going to leave the land of entrapment and Portalis and welcome back. We're glad you're here. Like, I'm just joking. I love Portalis. But thinking these big dreams, if I can one day, and it never pans out the way you think it is. And I think this, this has become an issue that we've developed in kind of modern Western Christianity, that we somehow attempted to tie this concept of following Jesus with the expectation of fulfilled dreams and aspirations and desires. That if you just become enough like Jesus and trust Jesus enough, then all your wildest dreams come true. Anything and everything you ever wanted comes to fruition because you've put your faith in the one who makes it happen. The best is yet to come. And I just want to be clear, as we press into 2023, our big goal as a church this year is that in 2023, we want to be more like Jesus, intentionally more like Jesus. And this goal of being intentionally like Jesus, please do not think that if you can just get it together enough and be more like Jesus, then your life's going to get easier and you're never going to be disappointed and you're never going to be sick and there's never going to be any problems that come your way ever again. It's just not true. And I want to set this up as we start walking through this year and focusing on what it means to live like Jesus. Because I think this is exactly the point of Matthew as Matthew begins to close out the birth narrative, the nativity story of Jesus, and open us up into the life of Jesus. So we preface a couple things as we get into this text. Uh, Number one, you'll notice if you have your bulletin and you're a note taker, the notes are a little daunting. I understand I'm going to do my best to hold on with you through it all. Uh, But this sermon may feel a little bit like a -a tilt-a-whirl. We're going to be Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, prophets, Exodus, back to... Just bear with me. If at any point you're like, I don't understand where we're going, I'll see if I can step back, dial you in a little bit, and prove the point that I think Matthew is trying to prove here. But, But hold on, just trust me. I have highlighted areas for you to take notes in. So if you want to take notes, you can just see those highlighted areas and follow along with me there. So we, we got this. I promise you can, you can do it. 
Contextual things that you need to know before we get into this, this te- text. Number one, Matthew is setting up a pattern as he closes out the story. He's going to tell you three stories that have to do with the birth narrative of Jesus. This is after the wise men come and drop off the parent, uh, presents. So this is, uh, this is the part, I always say, of the nativity that we never include in the Christmas pageant. We always cut the pageant, everyone bows, and we don't talk about these stories. But Matthew seems intent that you need to understand what happens after the birth of Jesus. So he's going to give you a story. He's going to tie that story to the Old Testament to help you make sense of it. And he's going to do that three times. And so we're going to just dive in and explore all of that. But in order to understand that, you need to understand how the New Testament authors interpret and understand the Old Testament prophets. Because I think we have this tendency sometimes when we hear the word prophet or, or prophecy, we almost default to this idea that prophets were like, hyper-spiritual, mystical men who would like go up on a mountain with their beards and their staffs and God would zap them with a lightning bolt and their eyes would roll back in their head and they would get some like television broadcast vision of little baby Jesus running away from Bethlehem in the arms of Mary and Joseph as soldiers march in and start killing baby boys. And this is the vision that Hosea has. But if that's your interpretation, if that's what you expect to happen, and then you go back and start reading the Old Testament prophets, you won't find that. In fact, that's not how Matthew thinks about the Old Testament prophets at all. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some times when the Old Testament prophets would have a vision and then write about it. But if that's your expectation, you'll typically find yourself pretty confused and frustrated when you jump into the text. Rather, the New Testament author's understanding is that the Old Testament is this unified story starting in Genesis, going all the way through, which kind of just ends with all of these dangling promises and storylines. That it, there's stuff that's said that's never fulfilled. There's expectations to come that haven't happened. And so the New Testament authors see Jesus as being the tie-in to all of these dangling storylines, all of these promises, that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of these patterns and this lifestyle and this purpose that God has given to the nation of Israel. So they'll reference back to a passage, and then they're just going to expect you to know the context and the passage like they know it. They'll expect you to know the bigger story, the verses that come before it, the verses that come after it. And that's all fun, but we live 2,000 years removed from the New Testament and even further removed from the Old Testament. So how often when you see an Old Testament passage in the New Testament, do you like, oh, I know all about Hosea in the context? Yeah, me either why I want to try to see if I can help get you back to that and show you what Matthew's trying to do as we understand how he sees the Old Testament writers and prophets. Number two, just contextual thing you need to understand is the timeline of how this passage comes out. I know when we talk Christmas time and nativity story and all of this stuff, uh, we typically lump the entire story together in like a one night event so that we can fit it on stage and have children play the parts of shepherds and Joseph and Mary And so you get your manger and the star above the manger, wise men on this side, shepherd on this side, a couple angels. Everyone comes together, they bow, curtains close, the end. Uh, I'm not saying it's bad. I understand why we do it, but it is a misrepresentation of the biblical timeline of how Jesus came to be born. In fact, the way Matthew tells the story here and the way Matthew accurately recounts the story here, it actually seems like Jesus may very well be between a year to two years old. Uh, When the wise men show up, Matthew says that they show up to the house, not the manger. So they're moved to a house by this point. 
when King Herod has his scholars go and do some research about when this star appeared and how long ago these wise men have been traveling, they come to the conclusion of, with an error of margin, of killing every baby boy two years and under. So that seems to imply to most scholars that Mary and Joseph have probably been in Bethlehem for about a year and a half at this point, meaning they've made it their community. Joseph has started to set up shop, I imagine, as a carpenter to make money, to buy food for his new family. Mary is maybe making friends with other young mothers in town, going to tabernacle with them, letting baby Jesus play with the other babies, and they've made Bethlehem their, their town. And so what I want you to do as we kind of walk through this passage together is do everything you can to try to put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Joseph. Feel what they feel. Experience what they experienced. And then ask, what would your response be? How would this pan out for you? Feel the panic. Feel the sorrow, the disappointment, the uncertainty, the, God, this is not how I envisioned the life of the Messiah starting. God, is this what you planned? Because it's all over this text. Let me start in verse 13. We'll just start going through verse 15. After they were gone, after the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and they escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through one of the prophets might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So set the scene. Mary and Joseph have been living in Bethlehem maybe a year, year and a half. Joseph's already plugged in. He's doing his carpentry work. Mary has friends maybe that she's taking Jesus on play dates with. And then one evening, this caravan of foreigners come in. They knock at the door. They point up in the sky and they say, this star above your house told us that you've given birth to a king. May we see the baby king. And they let them in and these wise men from another nation fall down and worship this baby. And then they just dump a load of money in Mary and Joseph's lap. It's in the form of presents, but it was worth a very high penny, a very pretty price. So they do all of that. They leave probably one of the best nights of your life. Like, man, wow, God, like you really have provided in such an incredible way. And then the way Matthew writes, it seems like that very night, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, hey, you've got to get out of here. There's someone trying to kill your son. Talk about a roller coaster of emotions. From high to low, from joy to panic, from gladness to, God, what are you doing? And so Joseph obliges and he picks up Mary and, and Jesus and he gets them out of town. So imagine yourself in that story. What are you feeling? As you're running out of Bethlehem, what is that roller coaster of emotions that's going through your mind? God, do you know what you're doing? God, how is the birth of your Messiah that's come to bring peace on earth resulted in this? God, did you forget about us? Did you lose control for a minute there? What's happening? So how is Matthew going to try to get this to make sense for you? Well, he's going to take you to Hosea chapter 11. So Kelsey, I think this is slide two now. This is your first little blank. Hosea chapter 11. Matthew wants to take you back to the prophet. And again, on the first note, you might look at that and say, oh, so Hosea knew, he had this little movie screen vision that Mary and Joseph would have to flee Egypt, and so God would call his son out of Egypt and fulfill that prophecy. But if you go back and read Hosea chapter 11, which you 
you should. I'll read some of it for you here. Hosea is not doing that. He's not attempting to tell some sort of future. He's not giving some sort of oracle vision prediction. Hosea 11 says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel was called to the Egyptians even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It was I that taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. Do you see a little movie screen of Mary and Joseph running out of Bethlehem? No, that's not in the text whatsoever. What is Hosea 11 about? Hosea 11 is a poetic reflection on a story from generations prior. So Matthew has now all of a sudden connected you from the birth of Jesus to the prophets, from the prophets to the Exodus story. Matthew's wanting you to join with him as you consider this pattern all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because Hosea is pointing out that from the start, God has been faithful to his people. He's rescued them time and time again, even when they don't return the favor, when they worship other gods and they deny him, God still rescues them. So what does Hosea 11 have to do with Matthew 2 and the angelic message to flee to Egypt? Matthew wants us to consider more than just the few short words of Hosea. He wants us to consider the Exodus story. So can you think, story of Matthew, is this the first time some selfish, power-hungry ruler has tried to maintain that power through murdering baby boys? This is the first time in the Bible that's ever happened. No, there's another story where that's happened. Back in Exodus, with a man, rather than being called king, he's called Pharaoh. This is actually not the first time this situation has happened. Matthew is inviting us to consider the prophet and to consider Israel's history and to consider the Exodus story in light of this story. That even when the plan in Exodus seems like it was derailed, when Israel was enslaved and when an evil ruler oppressed and murdered God's people, does that ruler succeed? Is God's plan thwarted? No. So, parallel that here. Again, an evil tyrant seeking to thwart God's plan so that he may maintain his power. Can God have his plan derailed? Can evil ruin God's plan? Absolutely not. It's a little hard to read those, isn't it? Here's the the text. God cannot be threatened and God's plan cannot be thwarted. God cannot be threatened and his plan cannot be thwarted. Even in the fleeing to Egypt, in the midst of the anxiety and the panic, Matthew wants you to know, hey, God has not been thwarted. His plan has not been derailed. You can remember what he did in Exodus. You can remember how Isaiah made meaning of that and trust him to make meaning of it even here and now. Then he goes on to the second story. Starting in verse 16, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah weeping in a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. So, again, set the scene. It's pretty clear why we don't include this in the Christmas pageant. 
No one wants to, at Christmas time, you know, talk about the murder of children. I understand that. Uh, we, we tend to cut Christmas and say, Jesus is here, Jesus is here, hooray, the end. But Matthew doesn't do that. He says, actually, the presence of Jesus results in a backlash from the world, in a violent backlash from the world, from those in power. And he wants us to consider what that means. And it's easy for us, I think, to miss the anguish and pain that would have persisted in Bethlehem for years. I mean, every family in that town telling their children, you had an older brother, but the Romans killed him when he was two. You had a younger brother, but you never got to see what he would grow up to be. In fact, there has been people that have ran just kind of diagnostics on population and birth rates, and we imagine that probably around 15 to 25 boys would have been murdered in that one night together. And while those are nameless, faceless babies to us today, I would just remind you that they would not have been nameless, faceless babies to Mary and Joseph. They would have been in that community long enough to know the names and faces of those children. But what's the emotion you feel when you get to Egypt and you get word King Herod has massacred every single baby boy in Bethlehem? What's the thoughts that come to your mind? It has to be something along the lines of, God, where are you? I mean, do you even exist? Did, did you abandon ship? What about your plan for rescue? Those boys didn't get rescued. And Matthew, again, wants to invite us to the Old Testament and consider another take on it. So Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31. And again, you have to go back and understand the context of Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is again poetically reflecting. He's not giving some prophecy. He's reflecting back on the night that Babylon comes in and slaughters not only infants, but just countless amounts of people. Babylon comes in. They lay siege to Jerusalem. They burn down houses. They destroy the temple, murdered a significant portion of the people. And the people that weren't killed that night were then taken captive. And then led to the town, the city of Babylon. Actually, if you go read the story, they were first taken to a town up north of Jerusalem called Ramah, where they were gathered together, shackled together, and then marched off to a foreign land to be exiled. This is something that Jeremiah doesn't just hear about, he knows it, because he was one of those people exiled to Babylon. One of the most traumatic nights, probably the most traumatic life in a way that none of us could even understand. And so he writes this poem and reflects on it. He says this in Jeremiah 31, 15. He says, this is what the Lord says. A voice heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah recalls another Old Testament story in Genesis 35 of Rachel, who is the matriarch of Israel, one of the matriarchs. She's married to Jacob, Jacob's preferred wife. And so he reflects on this story of how she dies in childbirth while going to Ramah. So he's portraying, Jeremiah is portraying Rachel as again weeping over Israel as Israel is being exiled. The best way I've heard someone describe it, I think, is probably something along the lines of like a poetic reinterpretation, not reinterpret, but a poetic interpretation of saying like George and Martha Washington weeping from their graves over the 9-11 attack. That would probably be about the best one-for-one one we could make in an American context. 
But if you keep reading in Jeremiah, he doesn't end it this way because in verse 16 he goes on and says, This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for the reward of your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will return to their own territory. So Matthew, again, he's giving a nod to the just utter destruction and chaos and brokenness of those families and Mary and Joseph that they would have felt in this story. But he calls us back and he says, hey, is this the first time an atrocity has befallen God's people? Is this the first time an evil person has come in and just laid siege to innocence? No. So then, where is God in tragedy and difficulty? Where is God in the midst of this problem. And I think Jeremiah wants us to understand that God is not absent. God is not indifferent. God is not apathetic. No, God is like Rachel, mourning alongside us. He's mourning alongside us while he works out his purpose. I did not realize that yellow highlighter would be so yellow. It wasn't yellow on my computer like that. Mourning alongside is, is you're filling the blanks there. And Matthew seems to think this is where we find hope. That even in heart-wrenching tragedy, even in sheer confusion and pain, we can look to heaven and see not a God who's way far away and unconcerned with the happenings of this world, but a God who is not content to leave this world broken. So instead, he steps into time. He subjects himself to the brokenness of man. He himself suffers to bring the light of hope that God will still rescue. Matthew wants us to know that while following Jesus may not remove tragedy and difficulty from your life, it assures us that God's presence is always within tragedy. This is what Matthew says at the end of chapter 1 when he says, See, the virgin will give birth and become pregnant, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That even in the brokenness, God is with us. And we get to the third text. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. So set the scene. Years post the previous events, Herod is finally dead. An angel tells Joseph, hey, it's safe to return back to Judea. And they travel back north. And when they arrive in Israel, I think Matthew's kind of implying that they're planning on settling in Bethlehem again. They still have relationships there, probably. Uh, Joseph would maybe even want to raise the son, the Messiah, in Bethlehem, because that's what the Old Testament says he'll come from. But then once they start getting close, another king comes to power, the son of Herod, and just as power hungry, just as dead set on maintaining that power. And so Joseph is afraid. Verse 21, he fears what's going to happen. And an angel comes to him in a dream again and says, go back north. So they end up going back to he and Mary's hometown of Nazareth. Now, granted, this is nowhere near the atrocities of the first two stories, and I understand that. But there is a real human atmosphere of just disappointment surrounding this story. 
Because what's in Nazareth? Nothing. It is a podunk little town. And if there's anything in Nazareth, it's just the rumor mill that still thinks Mary and her child is a scandal covered by a lie. This is what the New Testament will go on to tell us. It'll have guys like Nathaniel saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That even Nazareth wouldn't listen to Jesus when he begins his ministry. You ever felt that type of disappointment? I'm going to college and I'm never coming back to this town again and you're back. I'm going to start my own company so I don't ever have to work for a boss like that one again and company flops and you're back working for that boss. That feeling of disappointment that hangs over you when your dreams and hopes and aspirations don't pan out how you imagined they would. And I think Matthew is implying to some extent that Joseph really had no desire to go back to Nazareth. But circumstances outside his control force his hand and he ends up right back where he started. And Matthew implies that even if Joseph is disappointed in this reality, it still corresponds to God's intent, that God made this plan pan out. So Matthew says, then what he settled in a town called Nazareth, verse 23, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. So who is Matthew quoting? He doesn't really say, he just says prophets, plural. So there's some tie-in he's taken back to all of the Old Testament prophets. And then he says that he would be called a Nazarene. And if you look, your other two mentions before this have probably footnotes in your Bible that they'll say Hosea 11 or Jeremiah 31. This one does not have a footnote because if you go and use Bible software and look through all the Old Testament prophets and you do a word search for the word Nazareth or Nazarene, guess how many hits you'll find? Nothing. It doesn't show up. So is Matthew just lying? I don't think so. He's way smarter than that. Matthew's trying to pick up on something. And there's some different interpretations, but I think this is the most reasonable one. It has to do with Hebrew and Greek wordplay, connecting us back to Isaiah 11, verse 1. And there's other verses too, but I'll just mention this one. Then a shoot will grow out of the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots that will bear fruit. Hold on to that word, branch. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So it's this image of a tree, the tree that is Israel being chopped down to the root at exile, that the kings have all fallen, that the palace sets empty, the temple stands destroyed, I guess has fallen, destroyed. And so what was once a thriving nation is cut down to a stump. But Isaiah's vision is that out of the stump is a little branch starting to grow. And the Hebrew word for branch is the word netzer, N-E-T-S-E-R, netzer. And in fact, if you go and you look at the Hebrew pronunciation of the word Nazareth, they would have probably more pronounced it Netzareth or Netzeret. I believe what Matthew's doing is he's playing on these two words. Because from Isaiah, this is going to be a theme that's picked up through other rabbinic literature and other prophet themes, that another word for Messiah becomes this phrase, Netzer of David, or branch of David, that Jesus would be the branch Matthew seems to be tying all of this together through the prophets into the town. That the Netzer of David grows up in Netzeret. So here's the connection for you. Even the disappointing news of returning to Nazareth for Joseph was just another way for God to affirm and confirm his plans for the world. So then, how does God view our disappointment? I think God understands that even our disappointment is a tool to prove God's plan. 
even our disappointment, is just another tool in the hands of God to do things that we never envisioned him doing. So God's tying the promise, the netzer of David, into the town of Netzeret, Nazareth to Nazareth. And I know this is a lot of text with a lot of points. Three stories all tied back into the Old Testament as Matthew kind of seeks to show us this. But, but I want to just zoom out here and ask this question, what is Matthew trying to tell us? I mean, does Matthew just include these three stories at the end of his narrative story because he's like, ah, they'll make good bedtime stories. No, they don't make good bedtime stories. Probably don't even read these ones to your kids all that much, right? So, so why is Matthew including this? Because Matthew's whole purpose of his book, the entire reason he's writing this is that Matthew wants you to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Matthew believes that Jesus has come and changed the world. That Jesus has come and changed him, and that Jesus has come and can change you. That if you put your faith in this Messiah named Jesus, died and raised for your sins, that you will receive salvation of your sins, be forgiven, and Jesus will change everything about you. But I think right here, Matthew wants to kick off by saying, now some of you may think that it just means life gets so good and you never have to worry about anything ever again. Yay, Jesus is here. I'm rich and happy and wealthy. And Matthew's saying, but that's not how it works. It's not how it worked for Mary and Joseph, and it's not how it works for you. But you need to know that even when you follow Jesus and things feel like they've gone off course, there is no amount of evil that can ever threaten or thwart God's plan. Even when evil wreaks havoc and creates tragedy in your life, God is not far off and distant and apathetic. No, God is mourning alongside of you as he's working out his purpose and hope for the world. And that sometimes that may mean our dreams and aspirations don't pan out the way we thought they would. All of our wildest dreams don't actually come true when we follow Jesus. But even so, God can use the disappointment of life to further and prove his plan for hope for you and for the world. So let me tie this all together. Final slide, Kelsey. Why does any of this matter? Why does it matter to us as we walk into 2023? And I would just say this. As you intentionally live like Jesus, because that's what we're going to be pushing you to do, that's what I'm going to be pushing myself to do as a church this year. As you intentionally live like Jesus, do not mistake difficulty as God's absence. Do not mistake the gift difficulty of life as God's absence in the world. Whatever you face in this upcoming year, and I don't know what it can be, it might be a wonderful year of goodness and hope, and that's amazing, but that's not promised. So whatever it is you face, even if it's the most tragic, destructive situation, know this, God's presence is is found in Jesus. And he still has room to move and work hope into your future. It's a pattern that started in the Old Testament. It's a pattern that the prophets picked up on. It's a pattern that happens in Jesus' life himself. It's a pattern that Matthew reflects back on. It's a pattern that you can rely on even when the world seems to be crumbling behind you and underneath you. God has this incredible ability to take evil to flip it upside down and turn it in on itself. It's like the way 
David uses Goliath's sword to slay him. It's like how Joseph's brother intend evil for him and God intends it for good. God has this way of finalizing his patterns. I just want you to reflect on that for a few minutes. We're going to do a final song, and uh, Mike Howard, one of our key deacons, is going to be up here, and he'll pray with you and for you if you would like that. But just to reflect on what is 2023 going to hold for me? And regardless of whatever it may be, to settle in and say, Jesus, I want to be more intentionally like you. It may not mean my life gets better. It may not mean I get everything I want, but I don't want those things, Jesus. I want you. Let me trust you as I intentionally become like you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for stories like this, stories that remind us of the reality of the world, that remind us that this, this world we live in is not a promised perfection utopia. That comes in your new creation, your new heaven and your new earth. But for now, God, we're limited to who you are and how you work in the brokenness. So God, let us see and trust your power and your goodness. God, let us love you and let us trust that even when things don't pan out the way we thought or expected them to, that you are still good. You are still God. You are still in control.